with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 24, and as you do so, I want to, I guess, apologize. There's some days where my eyes just never get in focus. By the time I get up here, I have no idea why. Slept good last night. Um, so I've misread several words already. Probably will some more. So, And I wish I could blame the next apology on this as well. But we have another one of our gospel partners with us here today. Sarah and her kids are here. Amjad isn't here yet. Um, he'll be here in a few weeks, but they're here visiting. And I was to have her come up and greet the congregation at the beginning, and I completely forgot, got distracted this morning. So please be sure to greet her and the children uh, before you leave today. Sarah, can you just wave? so that everybody who may not, our new folks may, may know you there. So anyway, it's so good to have you guys with us here today. And if you're here another week, we'll get you back up here. So Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1. This is God's word. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon... The Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, the good figs very good, and the bad figs very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave them to their fathers, to them and their fathers. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 30th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from old and forever." Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words 
Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon twenty-seven or 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we approach now to hear from your word, would you speak to us and speak to our hearts? Would you help us to understand? Would you give us insight? Would you penetrate and would you break down the things that we uh, hold up as idols, the things in which we put our trust other than you? Would you remove them and would you help us to see your goodness and your sovereign love demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus? I pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. When we were in Cyprus, we lived in in an upper house and our landlord and his family lived beneath us and so we saw him on almost a daily basis. He was always out working in the garden area around the house. Had a bit of a green thumb. Uh, He was uh, very proud of his flowers and his bushes, but I think the thing that he was the most proud of was his fig trees. He loved his fig trees. And every day when I would come home from work, he would be out there working, and he had to give me an update on the figs. Every day. You know, and if it was, if it, he knew exactly when they were coming into harvest, if it was five weeks out for a whole week, every day I would hear five weeks, just, just five weeks, you know, until the fruit would come. He grafted several different variants together and he would show me how he had done that and show me how he watered them. When we first moved in, he took Micah and me out to his family's property uh, a few miles away. And there were these larger established fig trees, uh, bigger than I had ever seen, bigger than anything he had uh, at the house. And we gathered figs. And I kid you not, some of these figs were as big as my fist. They were massive, like no fig I had ever seen. We had a fig tree in our land that grew these little plum-like figs, you know, that we might get three or four a year off the tree, uh, and that was it. These were just like covered in figs, these trees. And the flesh of the fruit was not like, you know, the figs that we get in the store here, the dried ones, you know, they're brown. So of course, it wasn't anything like that. They were, they were fresh, but it was still different than any fig I've had in, in the U.S. They were much more like a peach, very fleshy and very juicy, and of course, just awesomely sweet. And so we gathered buckets of figs. And when we got back to the house, he sent me back upstairs with an entire bucket. Well, I knew these were his prized possession. And so my concern was, there's no way we're going to eat all these figs. I didn't think the kids liked figs, you know. So it was going to be me. Uh, Leslie might eat one or two. And so I was worried about them. The reason I was worried about them was because I knew how delicate this fruit was. I knew how delicate it was from witnessing the figs that had already fallen to the ground. See, that sweet, juicy, fleshy fruit is very (laughs) 
delicate. Uh, and so when one falls from the tree, it only takes a little bit of time under that Middle Eastern sun to turn it into something uh, unpleasant would not be the best word to describe it. It becomes so pungent and so foul so quickly uh, that you don't want anything to do with it. You don't want to step in it when you're gathering the other figs because it gets on your shoes and it stinks horribly. Uh, you don't even want to be around it. The bugs and everything come into it. Well, the people of Jeremiah's day were quite familiar with this scene. Figs were a delicacy. If you think about it, they had a number of, uh, of fruits and vegetables and so forth, but like us, they didn't have access to this year-round. Like, Grocery stores, right? They had to just take what they could get. And so when figs came in season and they were so delicate and they only lasted so long, they had to dry them. So the, the fresh, juicy figs, the ones that are in this vision, the good figs, the first ripe figs, those were truly a delicacy that they may, may, might only enjoy, enjoy for a few weeks out of the year. And because of this awareness, it makes for a great illustration that God uses for the people because they would get it, they would understand it. Unlike us who, we, we don't even appreciate as much the whole idea of harvest and, and, uh, and, and, and keeping how, how difficult it is to keep things because we have refrigerators and we have all kinds of preservatives and most everything we buy will last forever and ever anyway almost. And so it, we really can't appreciate just how precious a treat like this was, a good fig. At the same time, most of us aren't dealing with foul fruit because we have water hoses and buckets and brooms and ways to get rid of things and people who haul off the garbage. But the people in this time, when there was foulness, there wasn't, they didn't have the same sanitary practices that, they, that we had. And so the, the pungency, they were well aware of how this stuff lingered and stayed around. And so this vision was something that was very helpful to them to understand God's point. As we've seen throughout our study of Jeremiah, it's not written chronologically. At times, we've had to do a little work to figure out at what point Jeremiah is giving this message. There have been cases where we we don't know. We make our best guess or we can't make a guess at all. Other cases, there are indicators or hints. But in this case, we're told exactly when Jeremiah prophesies this. It's after Nebuchadnezzar carried off Jeconiah, who was king for just three short months. He carries him off to Babylon. So this was 11 years. We know this because that's how long uh, Zedekiah was on the throne before uh, Nebuchadnezzar came back to take care of business. Because Zedekiah decides to revolt. We'll get to that later. Uh, so this is 11 years before all of that, before 586 B.C. We made it 597 B.C. So Jeconiah, I know sometimes we get in the weeds, and I've been corrected that I've gotten too deep into the weeds a few weeks. Uh, I'm not trying to get too deep in the weeds, but it hopefully as we move through this, at least it's helpful for me to better understand who the people are and where we are in history to understand how all this is working together. So I hope I'm not going in too deeply. But Jeconiah, who was also called, called Jehoiachin, was on the throne for three months. Babylon had risen as a global dominant, a superpower in the world. They had done so very quickly when they defeated the Egyptians. And so they come, and, and they did this to other nations as well, and they basically show up like, hey, 
you're going to submit or not, you know, because we're here now, and do you want some of this? And if you don't, then you need to surrender. And that's exactly what Jeconiah did. He just surrendered. There was no war, and he and his mother were carried off into exile with a number of others that were told. Zedekiah, who was his uncle, or really his great uncle, he was placed on the throne, and he was really a, a, a puppet for Nebuchadnezzar until the end. So this is the period of time where Jeremiah is now giving this prophecy of the coming judgments. It's important to understand all this, to understand the mindset of the people. Because they had been hearing for a long time now Jeremiah's message. And what they began to say was, wait a second, Nebuchadnezzar already came. He came when he took Jeconiah and, and hauled he and his mother and all these other exiles off. It wasn't really that bad. Um, we're doing okay. In fact, we think we're better off because we're here and they're there and the temple's here and so, you know, we're the favored ones because isn't that what we do? When life goes well, we think, you know, God loves me. He's blessing me. All these good things are happening and, and how quickly we turn things when life doesn't go well to God doesn't love me. I mean, we would never say this in a church setting. I know that. So nobody's nodding right now, but this is how we feel in our hearts. I know enough from the smirks and the little nods to know that I'm not the only one who struggles with this. That when life doesn't go well and things fall apart, we struggle to believe that God loves us. And so God has a very important message for all of us in regarding, uh, or in regards to this. The problem was God had told them to surrender and they didn't. You remember that from the previous chapters where God had said, it will be your prize of war, your life will be your prize of war if you go out and surrender. But if you don't surrender, then you're going to be annihilated. And so those who went out were spared their lives, but those who didn't, we are told what is going to come to them. They wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. They ended up coming up with their own spin on reality. And so God brings this vision of the figs to instruct them as to what is really happening. It's an important lesson in his redemptive work, not only at this point in history, but it's been an important lesson throughout the ages, and it's one that we need to hear today. And that lesson is this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's from Exodus thirty-three nineteen, And we see it throughout Scripture. Paul, of course, quotes it in Romans. And it's a message that is very, very hard for us because we can't get our hands, heads around it. But at the end of the day, we don't get to demand grace. We certainly don't earn grace. It wouldn't be grace if we did. His grace, that unchanging love of God and the favor that He shows to His children is His prerogative and His alone. We don't pull His strings as if God were a puppet. He is holy and omnipotent. He is the creator of all. He is the one who declares what he will declare and does what he will do. That's what Isaiah tells us in chapter 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. The sovereign grace of our God, which he declares about these exiles who have been carried off to Babylon, is the same sovereign grace that he has declared to each of us whom he has called out of darkness into light. It doesn't make sense. And we can't take pride in it because we haven't done anything for it. It can only humble and fill us with gratefulness that he's poured out his love upon us in Christ Jesus. So... 
Chapter 24 is the vision, and then chapter 25 then comes after it to explain basically the, the backstory. It's, it is a recap, but it does this to explain why the figs went bad and why God does what he does. And it ultimately points to what we read in verse 13, that I will bring upon that land all the words I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. In other words, you guys think you're favored. You think I've already dealt with the exiles. You think you've been spared. You think nothing bad's happening. All the false prophets have been saying that, but I'm telling you, everything Jeremiah has prophesied is going to come true. That's what he tells them. And so looking in, in verse 1 of chapter 24, again, we're given the date, 597 B.C. Jeconiah is out as king. Zedekiah is now uh, coming into the throne. And the, this whole account is given in great great detail in 2 Kings 24. If you want to read that sometime, I wish we had time to read all of it. I'm going to read just a portion of it in a moment. But it gives us, it's a fascinating story because in it, what we see are all these people making decisions, doing things that all seem to affect and alter the course of history. What Jeremiah does for us, though, is it zooms way back out so that we see that while men and women are all making choices and doing their things that seem to affect and, and determine history, it is God who is superintending all of these things. He is at work over all these things, sovereignly ruling over it all. One example of this is in the explanation in chapter 25 of Nebuchadnezzar. He calls him my servant. Nebuchadnezzar, the unbelieving king that did great evil and was later judged, God calls his servant. The Jewish translators of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bibles, when they were making that translation, this was so offensive to them, they just left it out. It's not even in the Septuagint. Because they couldn't consider Nebuchadnezzar God's servant. And yet Nebuchadnezzar could do nothing that the sovereign Lord didn't intend or allow. So the king of Judah is carried off. The officials of Judah with him, the craftsmen, the metal workers. I mentioned 2 Kings 24. We're given a little more information there. Along with King Jeconiah, his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials, the king of Babylon took him prisoner, carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord. That's the temple. Carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house. He cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. This is to say that Jerusalem was stripped of its human resources, the best of its human resources. Of course, we know others were left. Zedekiah is there. His officials, uh, you know, what kind of people these were, you can only imagine. Since the best of the best had already been removed, uh, you can only imagine the kind of leadership that then arose in Jerusalem. Of course, there were people outside of the city in Judah that would have remained and would have been there. We'll see them come into play later. Jeremiah is not carried off. He's still there. So there are people still left. But we're told that this was, uh, in, in essence, this was a strategic move by this invading king who's going around trying to establish dominance to strip the best, the cream of the crop, and, uh, and, and take them away and, and lead them into, to, uh, into captivity, into exile, so that the, it would weaken the city and they wouldn't revolt against him. And it worked, at least for 11 years before Zedekiah decided to rise up. But at that point, he squashes him. Now, it's in that setting that the Lord then gives this vision. And Jeremiah sees these two baskets of figs. They're, they are set before the temple of the Lord in this vision. And the vision is very simple. 
One basket of figs, good. One basket of figs, bad, right? The good batch is, is, is referred to as like first ripe figs. Those are the ones that come first season. That's June is when those come in in this part of the world. That, those were the figs that when Bombos, our landlord, took us out that first time and we picked buckets, those were June figs, first ripe figs. They're the best of the best. They're sweeter. They're, they're, they're just better, more enjoyable. That's what is pictured in the good basket. The bad batch of figs, they're so bad, they're so foul, no one can eat them. And so the Lord asks Jeremiah what he sees. And we expect, because it's recorded, that Jeremiah is going to give something of deep insight here. But what does Jeremiah say? Good figs, bad figs. Right? Why is this even recorded? Why did Baruch even write this down? Well, the point, I think, or a point that's being made is there was no apparent explanation. God had to give the explanation. And if that point wasn't clear enough in the fact that Jeremiah could just simply state good figs, bad figs, verse 4 makes it especially clear. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Right? This is not Jeremiah's own interpretation. This is not a, a vision, a, 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 an interpretation of a dream that he's had like the false prophets had been doing. You remember how they were practicing? They concocted their own visions. They did, you know, made their own interpretation of their dreams. No, Jeremiah says, this is the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. And then Yahweh explains to him that as this one basket of good figs that Jeremiah identifies as the best, right? The first ripe figs. He says, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. Note the language there. The Lord doesn't say that the exiles are good like the good figs. What he says is, like the good figs, I will regard the exiles as good. He chooses to show grace to whom he will show grace. In this case, it is those whom he has sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. Verse 5. Sovereign grace. He is not only the determiner and distributor of sovereign grace, he is the organizer of the surrounding events. All of the details he worked to put into place to carry this out. If you look in your Bible right now in that paragraph that is verses 4 to 7, let your eyes zero in on the word I. In the three verses, verses 5 to 7, it's there nine times. Anytime we see a word repeated, that's usually a theme. God's making a theme. Guess what the theme is? It's God. (laughs) He is saying, I, I am the actor. I am the one who's at work. I will regard. I have sent away. I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back. I will build them up. I will plant them. I will give them a heart to know. I am the Lord. I will be their God. Do you hear the gospel ringing in that? <laughs> uh, the, just the, 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 the echo of what is coming. This is what God is doing. The sovereign grace of our God speaking over this people. I will make you righteous. The same truth that he spoke over our hearts when he gave us a new one. The good figs are not loved because they're lovely, but they're loved simply because God has chosen to set his affections upon them. It is all grace. God is going to plant them and build them up. Do you remember that language from the opening words of Jeremiah in chapter 1? That was one of the tasks that he was given to not only to tear down, but to plant and to build up. And now we begin to see that this, is, this hope is still there. It's coming. 
And then he says the bad figs, those represent Zedekiah, those who remain in Jerusalem. He includes the people who have run away to Egypt. That was a, a kind of had become a natural inclination for many uh, Israelites to find another superpower or world dominance to run to for protection. God says even those are not going to escape the judgment that is coming. He says everyone who remains in Jerusalem will become a horror, a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse. They will not only receive God's judgment, but they will become marked, in a sense, by that judgment. That everywhere they go, even the places that I drive them, he says, this is going to become their reality. They will all experience the discipline. No one is going to be able to get away. I remember once as a kid, I had done something. My mom determined I needed some discipline. She had a fly swatter. I ran. I think I made a lap or two around the house before I was caught, and I regretted that. You cannot run from the discipline of the Lord. Now, we're not surprised by the judgment, right? Pestilence, sword, famine. We're not surprised by that. We've seen it coming. We've heard the indictment against Judah. What we're surprised of are those who are regarded as good. Judgment makes sense, right? The wickedness of the people and the shedding of innocent blood, the oppression of the weak all kinds of sin and idolatry. It makes sense that a holy God would bring correction to His people who have sinned like this over and over again in breaking the covenant. In fact, when we go back and we look at the establishment of the covenant, He told them this. He said, if you break the covenant, this is what I'm going to do. Sword, famine, pestilence. They've broken the covenant repeatedly for generations. And now He tells them, sword, famine, pestilence. We can make sense of that. We can wrap our minds around that. What we can't wrap our minds around is how God would consider as good these others. Those who have been carried off. Why? It doesn't make sense. In addition, 2 Kings 24.14 says that only the poorest were left in the land. And we think to ourselves, doesn't God love the poor? I mean, isn't that in Scripture? And of course we know it is. God has a heart for the poor. But don't swing that understanding of God's heart for the poor and turn that into something as God only loves the poor. Or God loves the poor more. The reason he says that message of, of loving the poor to us over and over again is because we need to hear it. We're not inclined to see the needs of others. We need to be told that. Our hearts get easily distracted. We need to consider those who have needs. And by definition, we are all rich. So we need to hear that again and again. But there are those in our day who would... There's a number of ways this gets distorted. I mean, one is the whole notion of intersectionality and those who try and bring that into the gospel. There is no gospel in, in, in Scripture, or there is no gospel, uh, intersectionality in the gospel. Another way is, the, is uh, liberation theology, that what we're really being freed from by the power of the gospel is we're, we're freed from oppression. That's, that's not what we're freed from. We're freed from the stain and, and guilt of our sin. That is what the message that we see in Scripture. God calls the poor to faith and repentance, and God calls the rich to faith and repentance. God saves people who are uneducated, and He saves people with multiple PhDs. God saves kings and queens, and He's even saved a few pastors. It is all sovereign grace. It is God's working. He does it all. He has mercy upon whom He has mercy. And all we can do is thank Him and praise Him in humble obedience. That's what Judah should have been doing. 
but they weren't. They were, they, they, they should have been doing all along, trusting and obeying, but the prophecy now goes back. It goes back in chapter 25 to show us that since the very beginning, they haven't. In, 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 uh, in, in the first verse, we see that it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim. We go backward. We're told this is when Nebuchadnezzar first came to power. This is 605 BC. He's just overthrown the Egyptians at Carchemish. Establishing Babylon as the new superpower. And we're taken back to see not only how the bad figs were spoiled, but we're taken back to see God's sovereign plan being established. Because in human eyes, the people of Judah saw these great powers around them rising up and the threats that they represented. In human eyes, Nebuchadnezzar, and we know the story of Nebuchadnezzar, he thought he was really something. He was great for rising up and, and establishing his power. But what God does for us here in Jeremiah 25 is he goes back to show us that he is the one who raises up whom he will raise up for his own purposes to accomplish, accomplish his own mission. And so he goes on to say that, that uh, Jeremiah does, For 23 years I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. Not just to Jeremiah, but he goes backward to all the prophets. All the prophets God has sent. And we know that's Israel's history, right? They, uh, Jesus lamented that in, in, on his, in his earthly ministry, how they, they, they did not listen. They, they killed the prophets. So they were clearly warned. What was about to befall them was justified. They had earned it. Because of their hard hearts and their refusal to listen, God is now sending Nebuchadnezzar, who he calls my servant, to bring the discipline. And then we read the much familiar language of how the judgment would obliterate the land. It's language that we've seen before. Much of this is repeated language that Jeremiah uses here. And we know that the sense is, is not only is judgment going to come in, but it's going to completely obliterate the land so that they're not marrying, they're not celebrating, they're not even grinding wheat. It is utterly a ruin and a waste, verse 11 says. We're also given a time frame of 70 years. 70 years. Now, scholars have argued over this, and we're not going to get into the weeds on all their different thoughts on, on the 70 years. And my reasoning for this is I really don't think it's worth getting into the weeds because Jeremiah says 70 years. The writer of the Second Chronicles says it's 70 years. Daniel and Zechariah both in their prophecies say it's 70 years. So I don't think we have to look for symbolism or, or anything that's vague or not communicated in this or that we have to try and figure up and count when does it start and when does it end. It's, it's roughly 70 years and that's how it's represented. I think what we need to see is what does other scripture say about the 70 years. And one important passage is Second Chronicles 36, 20 verses, uh, or, or 36 verses 20 and 21. He says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became, this is the second, the final exile. And they became servants of him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, which is what overthrew uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. In other words, Jeremiah's words are going to come true, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. Do you remember one of the sins, Jeremiah calls out Judah for many sins. One of the sins was that they failed to keep the Sabbath. Jeremiah 17, he goes out after them for that. And so God, even in his judgment and discipline, so structures the length of the discipline to give the land the rest that he had, he had told them, give the land rest every seven years, take, give it a break. 
And, of course, we know from agricultural studies now it's actually good. This is, makes the land more healthy. God told them to do this. They didn't do it. They didn't keep the weekly Sabbath. They didn't keep the, 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 the annual Sabbath. They didn't do any of this. So God, in his discipline, sets it up where he gives the land its Sabbath. Why? To instruct them, to show them his goodness to them when they would obey him. So the people in exile there, they would learn of this later. They would see this later. They would, we would continue to see this. God's Sabbath is a good gift to us for our benefit to rest and to regard his day as holy. People in exile, they are, they are told they will be regarded as good, but they aren't said that they are good, right? That they will be spared discipline. We know that they're still going to experience the discipline. They're in exile. They're carried off. They're not in their home country. They're going to be servants of the king of Babylon. They're going to do his bidding. We know the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were exiles in Babylon. That's, what, that's where all this is leading, right? They'll be away from their homeland. They'll be away, away from friends and family. But through this act of judgment, God was going to bring an unexpected fruit. Through the remnant, the nation would return. They would come back, some of them personally, some of them through their children and through their grandchildren, but they would return to the land and to the work of the temple, which we see told in the stories of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, the rebuilding of the temple. But the land and the temple were never to be the true fulfillment of their restoration. And, of course, we see this on the other side of the cross. But ever since Eden, the whole point of everything that God reveals all along is to point to something greater that's coming. It's an Eden 2.0, so to speak. It's uh, the new heavens and the new earth. That's where everything is leading. And so everything along the way, they're pointers. The temple, the land, the worship, the sacrifices, the prophets, the priests, even when they had a king, all of these things were shadows to something greater, of something greater, of someone greater. And as we saw in the previous passage, God promised the righteous branch of David would be raised to sprout in the land. And he did. For he grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The one who was crushed for our sins willingly laid down his life that you and I might be regarded as good. Like sheep who have gone astray, we are all the bad figs. We're not the good figs. None of us is righteous, not even one. But Jesus came and was pierced on the cross for our sins so that we might receive his righteousness so that we might be regarded as good. And now, guess what? We're good figs. Not because of anything we've done, not because of any worth that we have, but because God has set his affections upon us. By faith in Christ, we are regarded as good because of what Jesus did. The Father is pleased in the Son, and so he is pleased with us. And the Son says to us, come to the table. Come and eat and drink. What is good? What is good? 
taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and eat and drink for your good, that you might be strengthened to persevere to the end and be nourished. Come and eat and drink to live good. Or as all the English teachers just cringed, live well, but to stay with the good theme. Come to the table to be strengthened, to live, to walk in obedience, to live according to His will. Come to the table and feast. Taste the one who is good. Be strengthened for your good and be empowered by the Spirit to live unto good works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace. Because without your work, your initiative, your breathing new life into us, you're giving us new hearts, you're taking us from death into life, you're taking us from darkness into light, we would be lost. Your mercy alone is the theme of our song because you alone saved us. And we thank you for that. We cannot wrap our heads around it. How in the world can you regard bad figs as good? And yet we look to Jesus and we see his finished work on the cross and we thank you for the grace that is now shown to us that we might be regarded as good figs. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Would you help us to walk in obedience into your praise, into your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.